Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Hello all and welcome to the Season 10 Finale and the latest edition of Hometown Legends. Now I hope this special extended episode finds you warm, safe, and healthy. Monsters Among Us Studios, aka my cabin in the mountains of Southern California, was absolutely blanketed in snow. And a brand new storm has just made its way in to drop its third foot on us in the past five days. And last I looked, it's maybe up to four now. So, now that that scene is set, and the snow is falling outside, I'm going to kick off the evening with a hometown legend of my own. One that you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere else. But first, please keep in mind that most of these hometown legends tend to have violent origins. So please, parental guidance is suggested. Now a couple hours drive through windy mountain roads, or 25 short miles as the crow flies from exactly where I'm sitting tonight, lies a strange spit of land peppered with pine trees and granite boulders a valley just outside the small town of Big Bear Lake. It's a weird valley, just above Dead Man's Canyon, just below Dead Man's Ridge. It's called Mayvan Canyon, a site of tragedy, murder, and perhaps government conspiracy. In the winter of 1870, a pioneer family whom the canyon would be later named after was brutally murdered and left to die in the snow by the mother of the family, May Van. After her deed, she sliced open her own belly, spilling her entrails, before taking her own life. The note she left claimed she committed the horrible deed because she was terrified of her family, who she thought intended on eating her. Some 50 years later, a team of sibling producers from Hollywood ventured to the canyon in hopes of developing the land. Within hours of arriving to the snow-covered mountain, the two brothers turned on one another. One shot the other with a shotgun before turning the barrel on himself. In 1960, an eccentric artist took up residence in that very canyon. It wasn't long before he too died when snow caused exhaust fumes to accumulate in the running vehicle he was sleeping in. But not before the man managed to try to take the life of one of his former friends, for as he put it, crimes he committed in a past life. 
Now the area is now veiled in secrecy. A rumor is the artisanal well that flows from the source of the valley has been capped and fenced off by the United States government. I've yet to make it there myself, but word is there are huge steel signs warning of risk of life and some vague mention of radiation poisoning. But like I said, I've never been there. So who's to say if this is just a big coincidence or perhaps something connected to the radiation rumored to be present in the area. But still others talk of ghosts, curses, and possibly even a real-life case of Wendigoism. Now I'll let you decide, but maybe wait for a nice, sunny, warm day to do your digging. I have an amazing program lined up for your listening pleasure. Hometown legends not only from all over the country, but from several distant corners of the globe as well. So without further hesitation, I present to you your season 10 finale, Hometown Legends, Part 10. And to kick us off this evening, we begin with one of the most infamous of all urban legends. Please welcome Brighton from Utah to the program. Hi, this is Brighton again. This is another kind of hometown legend story. There's this place in Utah, and it's called Gravity Hill. And all the teenagers know about Gravity Hill. All the teenagers go to Gravity Hill to check it out. What it is, is the legend behind it is you go to this hill that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's out really west in Salt Lake City. It's There's not much out there. There's a small town out there, but you pull up to this hill and it kind of starts under a bridge and it's a pretty steep hill and you put your car in neutral uh, facing up the hill and your car will just start going up the hill and this is actually a really true thing it really does happen you you can go there and put your car in neutral and for some reason I don't know why it does it but I don't know the, the physics behind it but your car will actually drive up the hill by itself in neutral and it's like defying gravity that's why they call it gravity hill but the legend behind it is that there was like a car accident or something and the person that died in the accident pushes your car up the hill that happened over there so just a kind of weird legend but that's it for this one thank you brighton now believe it or not i believe i've actually visited this particular location all the way back in 1988, when my family went to visit relatives in Salt Lake City. I distinctly remember my dad and aunt arguing over which direction was up as they poured a gallon of water onto the roadway. I also remember thinking they looked pretty silly to my eight-year-old mind. But fast forward to present day, and there are now gravity hills, magnetic hills, Spook hills, or as they're also sometimes called, anti-gravity roads, all across the country, and even the world for that matter. If you don't believe me, check out the Wikipedia entry. Dozens of locations are listed there, and I know of at least a few that are missing. But maybe a Wikipedia list isn't enough to convince you 
Well, if you're in that camp, join me in a little field trip to Covington, Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio, where WCPO, ABC News 9 out of Cincy, puts their gravity hill on full display. I don't think I've ever done it, actually. I've never done it. I just hear people talk about it. She's talking about Gravity Hill. When we first moved here, I thought it was really strange and that cars were coasting very slowly past the house. It's all part of a strange phenomenon where people believe there's anti-gravity in this area and they travel from all across the country to experience it. So I figured I'd try it out for myself with the help of some experts. Let's really test it out to make sure this works. So yeah, the car's in neutral. And then you'll notice the car slowly start to roll. Slightly moving forward here when it looks like we're going up a hill. Confusing, right? How is it possible to roll up a hill? Well, actually, it's not. According yeah, so to Eli White, experimental psychologist at NKU, he says it's all an optical illusion. Our perceptual system is very good, but for certain instances like this, when you have a false horizon, and information over here that is influencing the grade of this hill. He says you have to consider factors like not being able to see the horizon paired with this sloping embankment and the cement wall that towers beside the hill. This is exactly the reason why scientists use measuring tools. That's right. We got a second opinion from a physics professor. You can't trust your senses. They fool you so easily. In this case, I think it's a question of what artists call the vanishing point. Take, for example, these railroad tracks. We know they are two parallel lines, but in the distance, our mind makes us think they meet. And back out at Gravity Hill, the illusions continue. Visually, it looks like we are going up a hill right now, but... Um, That's not necessarily the case. Right. <laughs> but the reality isn't stopping people from continuing to test gravity for themselves. At least this particular hill is not on a busy roadway. Unfortunately, many of the other locations aren't as lucky. So if you decide to visit your local oddity, please use caution. If a passing driver doesn't clip you, the frequently patrolling police probably will. And if you're not one of those potential visitors but would still like to experience the phenomenon, I've linked to a video that does a great job of showing this strange effect. Skip ahead to the 2 minute and 17 second mark. That's probably the best shot. And you can find the link to that and nearly anything else Monsters Among Us related at the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com. Thanks again, Brighton, for allowing us to dive up a rabbit hole on this one. Now next up, we venture to a tiny town in Massachusetts. Please welcome Jackie to the program. Hi, Derek. My name is Jackie. I'm from Massachusetts. I love the podcast, but I rarely hear stories from Mass, so I wanted to share a hometown legend. So I grew up in central Massachusetts near Worcester. I used to snowboard at a mountain called Wachusa Mountain in the town over called Princeton. Princeton is a small town and pretty rural area. So I was on snowboarding at Wachusa Mountain as a kid. And people would always talk about this legend called the legend of Lucy Keys. So as the legend goes, back in 1755, Martha Keys, the matriarch of the Keys family, sent her two older daughters to the lake at the bottom of the mountain to get some sand used for cleaning. 
The youngest daughter, Lucy, followed her sisters down the mountain, but once the older sisters realized Lucy followed them, they sent her back up the mountain. While heading back up the mountain, Lucy vanished. The frantic search was carried out, but the girl was never found. It was said that every night, Martha Keys would go out into the woods to search for her daughter, yelling, Lucy. She drove herself insane looking for her daughter and died in 1786, not knowing what happened to her. It is said that to this day, people have heard the voice of Martha yelling, Lucy, in the woods of the mountain and hearing crying also coming from the woods. It is also reported that a little girl's ghost can be seen or people have seen small child's footprints in the snow when they're hiking or at the resort. It is also said that Martha Keys haunts the old cemetery in Princeton where she is buried. Back in 2006, a movie called The Legend of Lucy Keys was released. It was directed by the owner of Watrice Mountain. The movie was shot in Princeton, and there was reports from the crew of strange happenings, like seeing orbs and mist. There are two theories as to what happened to Lucy. One goes that the neighbor on his deathbed confessed to the murder of the little girl and stuffed her in a hollow log in the woods because he and Lucy's father had some property dispute going on. The other theory is that Lucy was kidnapped by Native Americans and lived with a Native American tribe for the rest of her life. It said that some travelers near the Canadian border came upon a tribe with a white girl living with them, and the girl didn't know English, but said that she came from Tucson Mountain. So it's not uh, really known what happened, but those are the two main theories. Every time I've gone mountain, I've never heard anything or experienced any like ghostly happenings. But snowboarding at night on the mountain is definitely kind of creepy. There's always some weird vibe. I always feel, especially going on to the top of the mountain where it's more wooded and there's like less light. I love the podcast. Thanks so much for all the hard work you do, and I hope you can use this story. Hope all is well. Uh, bye, Derek. Thanks, Jackie. This tale reminds me of the Omen Massacre and subsequent abduction and enslavement of the daughter of the family, Olive Oatman. In 1851, the Oatmans were traveling from Illinois to California with a company of Mormon pilgrims when the convoy was attacked by a band of Native Americans. Many in the groups were clubbed to death but 14-year-old Olive and her younger sister, Mary Ann, survived as captives of the Yavapaya people. She spent a year with them before being traded to the Mojave people from my area here in Southern California. Four years later, at the age of 19, she was repatriated into American society, but not completely the same. Although very little is actually known about her time with both tribes, she did return with a very large and distinctive blue tattoo on her chin. If you happen to watch the television program, Hell on Wheels, one of the characters on that program was based on Olive Oatman. And another interesting tidbit to end this story, the town of Oatman, Arizona, 
is also named after Olive's family and the events that took place there some 20 years before it was founded. Now, of course, that's only one explanation for Jackie's story. I think it's important to note that that part of the country is known for a creature that is said to beckon the unexpected to peril and even their death. So perhaps young Lucy fell victim to the infamous Pukwudgie instead. Thanks again, Jackie, for sharing. Now, if you'll kindly step into the vehicle, we will swiftly venture to our next destination, where Ashley in Indiana as our next spooky legend. Hi, Derek. This is for your hometown legend show. My name is Ashley. I'm from Indianapolis. I was calling to tell you this story about a hometown legend known as the House of Blue Lights. Back in the 70s, my mom was in the high school with all of her friends. It was like a Halloween tradition for them all to drive to the north side of town to see the House of Blue Lights because it was pretty eerie, I guess, to drive down into like a little bit of a country-esque wooded area of town and then see this house that was all lit up with blue lights. Well, the legend was that the man that lived there She didn't know his name, but I know now that his name was Mr. Test, T-E-S-T. The legend was that his wife passed away and he put her into a glass coffin in the solarium or greenhouse area of his home. And then he surrounded her in blue lights to, quote, keep her memory alive forever. So it was a neighborhood thing for many years. Uh, for kids to go up there at Halloween, look around the House of Blue Lights to see if they could see the man's wife in the glass coffin in the front window. And my mom told me these stories when I was a kid, and I, I always thought they were really creepy. To, you know, why would you want to go look at some dead woman in a glass coffin? Like, how would that even work? And But I always thought it was a really fun little, you know, ghost story to tell kids or whatever. And it's not even really a ghost story because it was literally all they did was go and look. And then, you know, later on in my lifetime, I learned that after, you know, I think it was in the 60s, this man had died and left his house to the parks department. And his descendants ended up having it torn down and torn uh, turned into a nature preserve. But the House of Blue Light story is still a thing in Indianapolis. Like, even to this day, I hear, you know, people refer to it when Halloween comes around every year because they just remember, oh, back in the 70s, we used to go up there. Back in the 60s, we would go up there and, you know, look around to see if we could see the lady in the glass coffin. And I guess the man who owned it was, you know, a millionaire. He was eccentric. And after hearing all these tales, of people coming to his house to see this lady in a glass coffin. He started to build up around the house like uh, glass bricks. And then that way it made the blue lights that he already had up even more eerie. And then he had a bunch of cats. And every time the cats would pass away, he would bury them and put little placards where he buried them and basically made it seem like these were children that he was burying that he was killing kids that came onto his property and he was burying them and 
people actually thought that, oh, don't go up there because the old man will kill you and bury you in his yard. And it was just one of those stories I thought was always really fun to tell. But I hope you can use this. I have a wonderful day, and thank you so much. Thanks, Ashley. Believe it or not, that sort of thing happens more often than you'd expect. Now, I wanted to find a news story to prove such a point. And usually, finding sources like that can be challenging. But this time, the only challenge was deciding which story to actually share. There were that many stories of husbands found under mattresses, been there two years, wives encased in glass coffins slash coffee tables, and then there's the spouses in the freezer stories. Literally dozens of them. So to help prove my point, here is one of the less terrifying examples. It's been crazy. For almost a month, the crime tape on this elderly woman's door has stayed up. I've never seen anything like what's been going on. With questions swirling across her Tooele retirement community, what happened to her husband? Jean was, by all appearance, a very nice person, very friendly. You know, we talked to her quite a bit, taking her to the doctor appointments. Friends say they knew Jean Mathers was about to die when she quit receiving dialysis treatments, but they did not know her dead husband was lying inside a freezer for the past 10 years. The story that she, at least she was putting out is her husband walked out on her. I think he died and she kept him for so she didn't have to turn in about his social security. But the question remains, how did Paul Mathers die? According to a notarized letter found along with the body, he said his wife was not responsible for his death. It was notarized on December 2nd, 2008. We believe he had a terminal illness. Based on what I know now, I'd have to say it was probably the plan, yeah. And for her to keep the money because it was her only source of income. Even if she did not kill him, not reporting her husband's death is illegal, especially when she continued to receive at least $170,000 of government payments. That clip is courtesy of KSEE, NBC News 24, out of Fresno, California. And the strange events transpired in Tooele, Utah. And I'll tell you this much. For all the reasons I've seen people preserve bodies in their house, scamming the government is by far the least traumatizing. Although, getting paid 17 grand a year just to live with a corpse, that's not bad work if you can get it. Thanks again, Ashley, for sharing your tale. Well, I'm going on a little hiatus after this episode, but that doesn't mean you have to stop sending in the calls. If you have a true paranormal story you would like to share on the show, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com for more submission options. Now please put away all electronic devices and put on those ponchos, if you brought them. Our next stop is directly in the Splash Zone. Please join me in welcoming Darren from Arkansas to the program. Hi Derek, my name is Darren and I'm from Northwest Arkansas. This is my hometown legend. There's a river near me called the White River. It's popular for trout fishing, and I've been on it a few times when I was into that hobby. And the very first time I was on that river, I heard about the White River Monster. And when I asked about it, it was described to me as a 
giant white catfish bigger than a boat. So, of course, I kept an eye out for it whenever I fished there. I decided to do some research on the White River Monster later on, and it's a much older legend than I thought. First officially sighted in 1915, the creature was described as having grayish skin and as wide as a car and three cars long. They started making a huge net to catch it, but they never ended up finishing it. It popped up later on in 1937 and began a full-on hunt for the monster, which of course was never caught or killed. And then in 1971, it showed up again and was described as a creature being as big as a boxcar, a bony protrusion on its head, and smooth gray skin that was peeling. Uh, It was even said to make a sound like the combination of a horse's neigh and a cow's moo. And interestingly, in 1973, the Arkansas state legislator signed a bill into law which created the River Monster Refuge in eastern Arkansas, which made it illegal to harm the monster in that part of the river. Um, As far as what it was, theories range from a giant catfish, which are somewhat common in Arkansas waters, but definitely not as big as this creature, um, to elephant seals to Florida manatees. The manatee explanation is my bet, as the White River monster links to the Mississippi River, which of course links to the Gulf of Mexico, which is right in the habitat of the Florida manatee. So that's it. Uh, Not really a personal sighting, though I certainly tried. Uh, I thought the history behind the White River monster was interesting, and I hope you did too. Thanks for the awesome show and all that you do. Thank you, Darren. One of the things I like most about hometown legends is all the sea-slash-lake monster entries. Sure, we get a few peppered in throughout the season, but the brunt of them fall here. And rightly so, I suppose. After all, many of these monsters do sound legendary. And like most monster flaps, there has to be one big sighting to jumpstart a search. Or, as in this case revive an old one. This is a map of Arkansas, and this would be Newport. Many sightings had taken place right here in this bend of the White River, of the White River Monster. In July of 1971, you have the Richardson Odie Report. They described this creature coming up underneath their boat and then feeling like this creature was out to attack them. It lifted their boat out of the water, so apparently they were riding on the back of this creature the size of a a railroad boxcar. Cryptozoology legend, Lauren Coleman, ladies and gentlemen. So that 1971 sighting really seemed to put the creature and the White River back on the map. But wouldn't you know it, this wasn't the first big sighting of Old Whitey. I guess that's what the locals nicknamed the creature. In my research, I unearthed a brief story about another, quite similar incident, some 155 years previous. While most reports of the White River Monster describe it terrorizing fishermen and boaters, some believe that this creature might have even had an impact on our nation's past. Far more than just a regional legend, some even claim the White River Monster might have affected the Civil War. At that time, the White River was a major transportation route, and according to local lore, the monster was believed to be responsible for overturning a Confederate munitions boat. Both of those clips are courtesy of Animal Planet's Lost Tapes. Tipping a munitions boat 
That's quite the feat for a creature many claim does not exist. But like Darren said, if you look at the White River on a map, it doesn't take much of an imagination to picture some sea-dwelling creature traveling up the murky depths. And if I may do so, I'd like to toss in another contender in regards to logical explanations. We've discussed a few times about bull sharks traveling as far north as the Great Lakes. I'd imagine the White River would be a cakewalk in comparison. So perhaps a bull shark is to blame. A nice, big, ten-footer. Thanks again, Darren. And watch your fingers and toes next time you're down at the water's edge. Now before we move on to our next location... My wife Sarah has been hard at work placing orders and commissioning artwork for new Season 11 merchandise. But there's still plenty in the shop to hold you over. T-shirts, hats, decals, gym bags, and much, much more all available at Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop. And we've heard your request for patches and pins. Those are finally in the works. And I should add that now all Patreon subscribers get 10% off anything in the shop. Check the recent Patreon post for info on that, or join any level at patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast. Now, if we work our way up the Mississippi, eventually we'll reach the state of Illinois. And that's the setting for Stephen's entry. Good evening. I'm your hometown legend storyteller, Steven. Just kidding. As with most submitters on this podcast, I'm a first-time submitter, long-time listener. Thank you, Derek, for an awesome podcast. I hope you enjoy this and can use this in your hometown legends episode. Now, I live in Illinois, the suburbs of the city. I have a couple stories here, but they both relate to the same location. This first part begins with my brother back in 2004. He is a few years older than me and, as such, had gone to high school before myself. Firstly, I'd like to mention that my brother is a pretty serious person, especially when it comes to the paranormal. He'll mess around, but he's not one to tell a tall tale. This was during May, and as my brother recounted to me, he was driving his date back home from prom night. His date had lived in the area of Barrington, Illinois. Around this area, there's a particular road that is known to have odd events occur. The road is called Cuba Road. Unbeknownst to him, when he was driving down the road late at night, but a clear night, no storms or fog in the area, as he told me, quote-unquote, it was like someone had drug a white sheet clear across the windshield. He said that this had only lasted for a couple of seconds and did not impair his driving. Being he was young and at prom, my brother also said that he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. There was another couple in the vehicle with him as well, and all four of the persons had seen the same white sheet drape across the windshield. As fast as it appeared, it had disappeared. My brother and his friends thought this was odd, but continued their journey and made it home safely. A couple weeks later, I had picked up a book from the local bookstore, which had spoken of famous Chicago haunts and those in the surrounding area. Lo and behold, within this book, there was a section on Cuba Road. Now this road is known to have orbs of light that float across the road, a ghost truck that will attempt to run you off the road, or tailgate you only to disappear a few moments later. There's even a rumor that there's an entire house that fades away in front of you off of this road. This is apparently due to the haunted cemetery which is also located near Cuba Road. This cemetery is called White Cemetery. Fast forward about 9 years and I'm still interested in this road. I was armed with my book, a cell phone camera, and some iron will. I would say that through 2011 and 2012, I had been up and down Cuba Road about 25 times. I would often park my car and even walk down the road on the late hours of the night trying to get a glimpse of anything. If anyone lives in the area, I would suggest against this though because the neighbors do not take kindly to those that walk along their property lines. As I was walking along the road, on one of my last trips down Cuba Road, 
I was with a friend of mine. I was taking pictures of the surrounding area, hoping to see a ghost or get run down by a ghost truck, but as usual, there was nothing to be noted. I downloaded a free Spirit Box app on the Apple Store, which was just another cheap means of trying to get some evidence or get a rise out of each other. Being that this was a free application, expectations were not high, and the words being spit out by my phone were nothing out of the ordinary or sensible. This was another clear summer night, and just as we had finished walking past White Cemetery and taking photos, which produced nothing odd, the spirit box began to speak. I looked down at the app and noticed that it says the word LIGHTS. I began to hope for the balls of light known to show themselves, but no more than a few seconds later the spirit box says ENFORCEMENT. My friend and I look at each other and assume the application is back to its usual ramblings. A few more seconds go by and the word LAW appears across the display. These are the last three words we saw and heard because about 10 seconds afterwards, a police vehicle had crested over the hill on the road, pulled over, and the officer began to question us about what we were doing on the side of the road at 12 a.m. We explained our situation and our intent, and the officer was kind enough to tell us that he had been patrolling the particular area for years and never saw anything on this apparently haunted road, but he did let us go on our way and I have not been back since. The odd part about this story though is that I feel that something or someone was trying to warn us of the oncoming officer. I could obviously be grasping at straws, but it was the only time I had experienced a close selection of words that had described something similar. I had kept this application on my phone and even brought it to the famously haunted Congress Hotel in Chicago, only to have nothing odd happen. Well, that's my hometown legend, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Love my Mao Magnet, and thank you as always for the awesome work you do, Derek. Bye-bye. Ah, the Joker's back. Thanks, Stephen, for calling in. Like water monsters, haunted and or cursed roads also play heavily into the hometown legends brand. Shades of Death Road in New Jersey, Boy Scout Lane in Wisconsin, and Clinton Road also in New Jersey. And of course, Illinois' Cuba Road are some of the country's most infamous. I wasn't able to find any other accounts of a white sheet covering the windshield on this particular stretch. But I did discover that a cemetery with similar paranormal stories by the name of White, lies just off a section of Cuba Road. So, if it scares you're looking for, there's a two-for-one special out on Cuba Road. Thanks again, Stephen. So earlier in the broadcast, I mentioned stories from far-off lands, and Ben from Australia is here to help me fulfill that promise. Take it away, Ben. Hi, my name is Ben. I live in Brisbane, Australia. This story isn't about me. It's about my friend. He's Aboriginal. Well, my friend's grandmother. It was in the 80s. They were still living in the bush back then. Not too far from civilization, but still deep in their culture of Aboriginals. And basically, his grandmother told him stories about what used to happen out in the bush. All sorts of weird things. One time, uh, small boy went missing. They were having a, a fire out in the bush. When out of nowhere, something invisible dropped from the trees, picked up a small boy, and all they could hear is the boy screaming as he got taken into the treetops. They were screaming for his name, calling for him for hours, and they heard whimpering after a while, and they went around the back of these trees, tree mine basically, and um, found the boy huddled up in sort of this weird webbing. He had no idea how he got there. He had no idea what happened. He was just whimpering, just sobbing for his mother, calling for his mum. They could not explain that to this day. Very strange. Another story 
on his grandmother. The elders in the tribe always told her not to go down to the river at night time. Bad things happened down there, to never come back. Now this isn't where crocodiles are local, this is in Queensland, southeast Queensland, so there's not crocodiles really lurking down here. But she said she went down to a river one night and basically saw a large serpent. It was huge, like a dinosaur size, hopped out of the water, in, out, in, out, and then submerged back down to the deep. Um, another time, she went down to the water. She saw an Aboriginal woman in a white dress, like a wedding dress. She was in the water, standing up knee height. As soon as she saw the woman, she started to walk backwards into the water and just submerged herself deep into the water and was never seen again. And this isn't the first time that this has happened in Aboriginal culture. Uh, they see Aboriginal women in white dresses all the time. Some of them are singing gibberish. It's just like an unknown tribe language. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, I've got more stories about my friend and his tribe. I'll call back another time. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. What's up there in them trees? Was that the predator that attacked the child? Or our friend, the glimmer man, mayhaps? This talk of the Outback and the Aboriginal people has me thinking of one of my favorite hometown legends from down under. The Megalania Prisca, or the Ancient Giant Butcher. Megalania, the largest reptile that has shared the earth with humans. It was 100% a meat eater, its meals alive or dead. Well over 20 feet from nose to tail, it could rear up more than twice as high as the tallest human being. This giant reptile has some unusual features. As its name suggests, it can tear prey limb from limb, but it also has a labor-saving device. It has saliva laced with toxic bacteria. When this saliva enters a wound, the victim is condemned to a slow death by blood poisoning. Once bitten, there is no escape. All Megalania has to do is leisurely follow the stench of death to find its dinner. That clip is courtesy of the documentary, Land of Lost Monsters. And I can hear some of you now. How is this a hometown legend? Well, buddy, I'm just getting started. It's rare, it's uh, seldom seen. It, uh, It lives in the most remote country. Rex Gilroy is an author and cryptozoologist. He describes a frightening account of a huge reptile, estimated to be 30 feet in length, that terrorized the Australian village of Euroa, Victoria, in 1890. It was raiding farms, eating livestock for weeks. Uh, it instituted this reign of terror, as I say, going from farm to farm, being seen, killing the odd cow or something. A search party was formed to hunt down the beast and kill it. Armed with guns and accompanied by dogs, they eventually chased the beast back into the surrounding bush. And, according to Gilroy, encounters with the giant lizards continue to this day. 1,400 miles from Euroa is Alice Springs, located in Australia's Northern Territory. 
It is the site of another purported Megalania sighting. We do have modern day accounts. A group of Aborigines in Central Australia, for example, were camped one night on the side of the road towards Alice Springs. And one of these creatures came across the desert, walked through their campground, and they scattered, ran back to the utilities they were in and drove off, left all their gear. Here on the Blue Mountains, some boy scouts and a scoutmaster were out in the Wollamai and uh, they went to sit down on a log. And as they approached it, the log got up and walked away. And the log was about uh, 22 feet in length. Okay, so maybe it's a home continent legend, but I still love the idea of a 25-foot land gator running around the outback. And there's just something delightfully dark about the thought of one of these things ransacking a remote Victorian outpost. Another clip is from History's Monster Quest, Season 2, Episode 19, Real Dragons. It's free on YouTube if you'd like to give it a shot. And as for the aboriginals and Rex Gilroy's story, I once had a four-foot western diamondback rattlesnake slither between four of us at a remote backpacking campsite. After witnessing our reaction to that, I can only imagine their reaction to that creature. Thanks, Ben, for allowing me to share one of my favorite monsters from your side of the globe. Well, while we're out of the country and talking about big beasties, let's make a quick layover in Canada. Jeremy, let's hear about your monster. Hey, Derek, this is Jeremy from Manitoba. I've got a submission for Hometown Legends. So I live in Manitoba, up in Canada, right in the middle. And we got lakes all over the place. The three big ones, we got Lake Manitoba, Lake Winnipeg, and Lake Winnipegosis. And going back for centuries to the uh, the indigenous people in this area, there's been sightings of what's described as a 4 to 15 meter serpent-like lake creature. It's got a, a camel-like or sheep-like head. They say it's brownish black. It's got at least one hump. Sometimes it's described as having flippers. Often described as having a dinosaur-like shriek when it rears up above the water. So, as I mentioned, this uh, creature's been reported for, for centuries, and it's debated whether there's one or multiple, because it's been seen in all three of those of the major lakes there. The craze kind of came to a head in the late 50s, when there was, there's been, like I said, sightings reported for centuries, but in the late 50s it really kind of took off. And in 1960, there was a fellow named Tom Locke, and him and 16 other people on August 10th in a place called I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but a place called Toots Aids. Uh, They reported seeing three lake creatures out on Lake Manitoba. At that point, it was deemed Manipogo. And like I said, it's debated whether there's one Manipogo or whether there's a different one in Lake Winnipeg, which they call Winnipogo. Obviously, the names are kind of taken from Ogopogo. I think they could have tried a little harder on the naming convention there, but it's just a personal opinion. So, as I mentioned, in 1960, there's this sighting by Tom Locke, and uh, following that, the head zoologist at the University of Manitoba, his name was Dr. James McLeod, he went out to conduct a search, and actually returned in August of 1961, where he was working with a man named Oscar Fredrickson, who had found an unusual bone in the area back in the 30s. They were never able to find any more bones or remains in classic cryptozoology fashion, 
that original bone was destroyed in a fire, so it no longer exists. So there is a theory about what Manapogo might be, and it goes back to, uh, like a lot of sea creatures, it goes back to the dinosaur times. In the Cretaceous period, it was just a big lake in this part of the world. And actually, not far from here, in a town called Morden, they found the largest ever mosasaur ever found in Canada. His name's Bruce. He's 13 meters long. He was found in 1974. And then uh, a couple years later, they found Susie the mosasaur. These are uh, mosasaur fossils, obviously not living mosasaurs. So yeah, the uh, theory is that Manapogo would be a descendant from these uh, mosasaurs that were all over the area back in the Cretaceous. So yeah, that's basically the gist of Manapogo. It's kind of our our provincial legend. I'm not sure if it's still going these days, but there was a Manapogo festival in St. Laurent and uh, that area in Tootsades or however you want to pronounce it, they've uh, created Manapogo camping ground and playground and all that stuff. But yeah, so that's kind of a fun story of what might be in the water in Manitoba. Thanks for listening. Thank you, good sir. I should note that a mosasaur Mosasaurus is an extinct aquatic reptile that sort of looked like a 60-foot-long dolphin mixed with a crocodile. Let's just say it's a good thing these things are extinct. Anyway, these creatures Jeremy spoke of were on my radar, but I don't ever recall hearing of an actual encounter, so I thought Jeremy's call was a good excuse to remedy that. So here is a first-hand account, courtesy of the Canadian television program, Northern Mysteries with Kenneth Welsh. Although it was cool, it was a beautiful day at Manapogo Beach on the banks of Lake Manitoba. Along with the vacationers on the beach was A.R. Adams, a local resident. Suddenly a large object caught his attention. He saw bumps that seemed to move at the water's surface. The creature rippled through the water like a giant eel. Adams figured that the head alone was about 25 centimeters long, but he couldn't see eyes or a mouth. Adams and other witnesses added their accounts to the dozens of other reports of similar lake creatures seen in lakes Manitoba, Winnipegosis, and Winnipeg. That day, Adams added his name to a long list of people who claimed to have seen Manipogo. Okay, that certainly sounds familiar, just like Jeremy said similar to Ogopogo and other purported lake monsters across that part of the continent. But I must admit, it wasn't easy to find eyewitness testimony on this one. And I may have learned why. The voice you're about to hear is respected Canadian author and cryptozoologist John Kirk. The Manitoba lake creature has not generated as many sighting reports as, say, Ogopogo or the other three. However, the credibility of the eyewitnesses who have seen it in the various Manitoba lakes, of which there are six, there's Lake Manitoba, Lake Winnipeg, Lake Winnipegosis, Dirty Water Lake, Cedar Lake, and Lake Dauphin as well. These are all joined by various river systems, which makes it conducive for this animal to flow through them. So it's not a contradiction that they're seen all over the place in Manitoba. Okay, John. That checks out, but what the hell is it? And why is it seemingly so widespread yet still unproven? 
We're talking about a single type of lake creature that inhabits many lakes across this country with perhaps variation within the species, like you would have with dogs, for instance. You have a Chihuahua, you have a German Shepherd, you have a Rottweiler, you have a Labrador, but they're all dogs. Hence, if there are species differentiations in Canada, they could depend largely upon environmental factors, inbreeding factors, and a whole bunch of other things. But to think that there would be more than one species of this animal is very difficult for me to grasp. I kind of have eliminated the plesiosaur theory. A, it's a reptile. Reptiles do not do well in very cold water lakes like those we have here in Canada, stretching from Newfoundland to British Columbia. You have sightings in all of these provinces. Uh, the idea of a reptile surviving is not good. My own personal feeling is that this animal has to be an amphibian. It's been seen in water, it's been seen out of water. There is an outside chance and a very vague one that it could be a mammal, but I doubt that strongly. Of course, it goes without saying that the plesiosaur is the typical Nessie-looking, extinct aquatic reptile. And I actually agree with Mr. Kirk on this one. If this creature is to exist, it almost has to be either a fish or an amphibian. And if it were a fish, I feel like someone would have hooked that thing by now. But a large salamander, not too unlike the hellbender of Appalachia or the giant salamander of Japan, each growing to maximum lengths of 3 feet and 5 feet respectively. But what if a slow-aging cousin calls the deepest and darkest depths of these northern lakes home, reproducing in these rivers, allowing the adults to age in the deep waters of the lakes? crazier things have happened. Thanks again, Jeremy. I'm loving the lake monster stories. Now, guys, real quick, I have some bad news. The show will be dark the entire month of February. For the most part. But the silver lining here is that I'll be back on March 4th to kick off Season 11 with It Came From The Depths Tales from working with water, or something like that. So, mark your calendars, and if you're jonesing for more monsters among us, don't forget that there's 40-plus episodes waiting for you at Patreon, levels starting at just $1 a month. Also, I recently sat down with Rob and Mark from the Cryptonaut Podcast to discuss some of my favorite calls. Now, there's a strong language warning there, those guys could make a sailor blush. But we had a great time and had a pretty good discussion. The link to that can be found in tonight's show notes. Not only was there a silver lining, but there's also a lot more of this special episode to come. For example, the submission by an anonymous caller from the swamps of Louisiana. Hi, Mr. Hanson Monsters Amongst Us fans. I hope that when my story reaches you, you are doing well and are in good health. My submission is for the Hometown Legends segment. A little background, I was born in Nicaragua, Central America, but migrated to the U.S. in my 20s. You could say I've lived half my life in both countries. Therefore, you get a two-for-one story today. My father passed away recently and I wanted to relate this story as a way of honoring his memory and keeping his spirit alive through, it, through this podcast. I am also looking forward to sharing my culture with you. 
I am from Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. The city's most important supply of potable water is obtained from the Asososca Lagoon, situated west from the capital. The lagoon has volcanic origins. Its name means blue water in Nahuatl, the language of the indigenous tribes from the Pacific region of the country. The lagoon has beautiful pictographs on its sides. There's a legend attached to them, and the lagoon the legend of La Serpiente Emplumada, or the Feathered Serpent. Legend has it that the Feathered Serpent is a god guarding a mythical temple full of treasure sunken deep within the waters of the lagoon. If the image of the serpent feels familiar, you are correct. It's a representation of the god Quetzalcoatl. You see, the populations of the Central and Pacific regions of Nicaragua are of Northern Aztec origin. Nahuatl is considered an Aztec dialect, and the people were subject to the Aztec Empire. There's a park called Las Piedrecitas, or the Little Pebbles, next to the lagoon. My father used to take me there as a child. One time, he took me on a weekday during the morning. He was supposed to take me to school, but I guess he decided to make it an exception that day. I was confused as to why I wasn't at school, but at the same time I was elated that I got to roam around free of schoolwork. He bought me botonetas, a type of candy similar to M&M, and told me about La Serpiente Emplumada. He pointed to the pictograph and told me how, if you look closely, you can see waves splashing around in the lagoon. That was the serpent, he said. I swore I could see ripples in the water and got goosebumps. After our scenic view, he took me to school. I was a bit late, but delighted. There are many species of fish and other animals living in the lagoon, many of which are endemic. I'm sure my father's words stirred up my imagination, but to this day, I like to think that I saw a glimpse of the feathered serpent. My second story is one of my favorites because unlike most stories about cryptids, it was a real-life animal what gave birth to the legend. Currently I reside in Louisiana. We have a relatively unknown story about a white swamp ghost. To my knowledge, the only artistic rendition is in a museum and is a taxidermy specimen called the white swamp ghost. It resides in the Abita Mystery House in Abita Springs, Louisiana. It is also known as the UCM Museum. It's a collection of oddities and curiosities. I have attached a link with a photograph in case you want, would like to see the specimen and know its whole story. The Swamp Coast is a very rare sight in a swamp or a bayou. Unlike the sight of many ordinary ghosts, which causes dread, the white ghost is a good omen. If you stare at its blue crystal eyes, you will find a very good fortune. In 1996, while surveying the area, workers from the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company found 17 white alligators hatchling deep in a Louisiana swamp. The hatchlings stood out like a sore thumb and the men realized that they were not fitted to live in the wild. Biologists confirmed that they wouldn't be able to survive in nature. The infants were brought to the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, where only a few made it to adulthood. 
These alligators are leucistic. Leucistic animals have a rare genetic condition that reduces the color pigmentations of their skin. This results in them having white or partially white skin and blue eyes. In contrast, albino animals have no pigmentations in their skin, and therefore pink eyes. It is this blue-eyed characteristic that drives the belief that the swamp ghost story originated from spotting one of these very rare alligators. While it is difficult for a regular gator hatchling to reach adulthood, it is near impossible for a baby with leucism. This would make them a very rare and therefore lucky sight around the swamps. Thank you for your podcast and all the work you do. Stay healthy, stay safe. Thank you, caller. I actually did a good bit of research on the feathered serpent for a script a buddy and I wrote many years ago. A story that followed a group of ragtag kids, nothing like the Goonies, that ended up discovering an Aztec secret in the hills of Arizona. Sebastian Shaw and the City of Seven Serpents. You're probably not surprised to have not heard of it. But never mind all that. Let's talk more about the Swamp Ghost. If you didn't catch that, the taxidermied specimen is currently housed at the Abita Mystery House in Abita, Louisiana. And I actually couldn't find a photo of this crazy crocodilian, but there are plenty of other goofy gators to keep you entertained. The dog gator for example. Half dog, half gator. Or the bass gator You see where I'm going with this. It's the sort of place that Sarah would literally have to drag me away from on a road trip. Now I've provided a link, so check out artist John Preble's work. It's pretty gnarly in all the best ways. And thanks again, caller, for sharing your hometown's legends. Now while we're kicking around the South, let's make a quick stop over in the Everglades State, where Josh has his own legend he'd like to share. Hey Derek, this is Josh calling from Brooklyn, New York. I'm calling for your local legend segment. The story is about when I used to live in Florida. Uh, I grew up around the Tampa Bay area and uh, spent most of my younger years in a small town called Lutz, which is about 20 minutes north of Tampa. But basically, I lived in Lutz at the same time that they started filming the Edward Scissorhands movie. And I think they filmed the majority of it in that town, the neighborhood where they actually painted all those houses in weird colors and everything. That was actually about five minutes down the street from me. And those were actual people's houses that they did that too. Like my friend, his mom was a dog groomer and she got the job to cut the dog's hair for the movie. So it was kind of a big deal, especially in the tiny town that we, we lived in at the time. So I'm mentioning that movie because by the time I turned 16, my parents moved actually a little further north outside of Lutz to the next town north of us called uh, Wesley Chapel, which was part of the Zephyr Hills area, put it in context. And uh, that's when I was 16. And that area was kind of like where people basically just buy property and build just weird homes. And, you know, being that it's Florida, you can imagine that there's a lot of weird stuff um, out there. So, you know, one house would be a very boring stucco, you know, block home. And then the next would be like a really strange home-built mansion of some sort, you know, that looks 
terribly put together. But after moving there, I heard little rumors from different people, you know, basically who would say, oh, do you, you know about the warlock or have you seen seen or heard about the warlock? And I'm like, what are, you, <laughs> what are you talking about? What warlock? I was going to high school, but I actually went a lot further from there. So there were no like local kids that I went to school with in my from my area. So it took a while for me to kind of get the full story. But basically, just four doors down from me, but because this was such a wide expanse of, you know, like of terrain where the houses were pretty far apart, but past my house four blocks down, there was a home built by a practicing witch, a male witch, who was known as the Warlock. And uh, at this point, he had actually died. It was just his wife, I think, living there and his kids. What's strange about it is, you know, it took once I found out about it, I had to, you know, walk by the house and get a glimpse of what it was. And, and the front yard of this guy's house, he was apparently some kind of artist where he built all kinds of sculptures out of cement. And so his yard was super creepy and it was riddled with these weird stone sculptures of strange figures and like monsters and characters coming out of the ground. You know, like his mailbox was made out of cement and was some kind of creature. There was an archway made out of cement. And as time went on, my mom, her therapist, was some kind of holistic therapist of some sort. She said she studied with the warlock when he was alive. She said she went to a dinner party at his house where everybody sat at like a long, ornate table. And the warlock had Great Danes as pets. He had two of them. And she said that the Great Danes sat at the table upright like human beings, like on their butt with their hands on the table during dinner just like people and she said it creeped her out that's my only insider information but what's so strange about it is the parallel between the edward scissorhands thing you know you know it's a long time ago for me now so i don't remember the other rumors specifically about the warlock and his family but um it's just so strange you had this guy that he was ostracized from the community i remember every halloween all the teenage kids would come around and throw parties across the street and try to like break into his property and so I remember one year I drove by just to see because I could hear the commotion because my parents' house had a, a bunch of woods behind it that basically, if you went all the way through, it would connect to the woods behind the Warlock's house. That's kind of important for part of the story. But anyways, like I said, I was saying, I, I, I drove past one of these uh, Halloween nights just to see what these you know, knucklehead teenagers were doing. And they were throwing a big party across the street from the Warlock's house. And I drove by quickly just to get a glimpse and then on my way back I looked into the warlock's property and all their lights were off but at one point there was a slight clearing between the trees and I could see the figures of two men standing on the roof with shotguns on top of the warlock's house probably his two sons protecting it from whatever these kids were going to do or if they're going to ever break in anyways the local legend of this warlock was just so strange that I lived next to while they're shooting Edward Scissorhands, and it's such a peculiar story to begin with. And I've never heard anybody make this comparison, but there's obviously some kind of connection that this was about 10 minutes drive apart from where they shot Edward Scissorhands to where this warlock guy lived, who is this like ostracized weirdo who, you know, was an artist and made strange sculptures in his front yard. And anyways, you know, anybody who grew up in that area knows about the warlock, but I've just never seen any comparison made between the uh, Edward Scissorhands thing. But uh, another interesting thing is the one of the sons built a house right next to the warlocks and it's completely buried. 
so the house is just it's a mountain with trees coming out of it and then if you look closely you'll see like a, a little stove pipe from their fireplace coming out at one point and then an antenna but uh anyways it's florida there's <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's hundreds of stories like that, but um, that's my local legend. And uh, thanks for your time, and I love your show, and I have listened to every episode at least twice. Take care, and thanks again. Thanks, Josh. Edward Scissorhands is, hands down, one of my favorite movies. And because of that, I'd seen enough behind-the-scenes bonus footage to realize that they didn't film the exteriors on a stage or lot, like Josh said. That community was actually paid to paint their homes pastel for the film. Though I'm sure the option to paint them back was also in the contract. But the second part of Josh's story also rang a bell for me. And at first I thought he was going to tell us about a different place altogether. Homestead, Florida's infamous Coral Castle. Basically an eccentric immigrant built a sprawling home and gardens out of solid coral blocks weighing tons each. It was widely believed he used mysterious methods to create the grounds, as he did so alone and at night. But I'm sure someone will call that one in eventually, so I'll stop there. So thanks again, Josh. What a fun experience to have as a kid. I'm jealous now and I'd be super jealous back then. Well, guys, on paper... This is MAU's 200th episode. Counting bonus episodes, partnerships, spinoffs, and whatnot, it's actually much, much higher, but as far as numbered episodes are concerned, you're looking at 200, babe. Not only that, just one long week after we return for season 11, the show actually reaches another milestone. MAU turns five years old. I say all that to say thank you to each and every one of you out there listening, submitting, commenting, sharing, reviewing, and, of course, supporting. I realize it sounds cliche, but it's true. None of this would be here without you. So a humongous thank you to each and every one of you out there tonight. And wouldn't you know it, we're just getting started. And to take this to the next step, I again need your help. I'm now actively looking for your paranormal videos as well. So if you've captured something strange on video or even audio, and you'd like to become part of MAU's next big step, please send the video to mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. Now because video ownership is a complicated situation, you can be rest assured that I will contact each video owner prior to any use. So no one has to sue anyone else. I hate that part of all this stuff. Anyway, I'll have more info on all of this after the launch of Season 11. Until then, send me those clips. Now quick, get in the car. We're headed to Michigan to talk to Joe about a haunted road. Hello, Derek and listeners. This is a call for the Hometown Legends episode. My name is Joe. I'm calling in about a haunted road from the very town I currently reside, Milford, Michigan. I was originally looking up paranormal places to go check out and investigate. When I found out about a haunted stretch of road just a couple miles away from where I live, 
The road is called Buno Road. In fact, it's the same road that my wife grew up on as a child. There's an area where the road is hugged by trees on either side, all a part of the old Crawford farmland. As a child, my wife would complain to her parents whenever they had to drive through the spooky forest. As the legend goes, if you stop on this road in the middle of the night and turn your lights off, you'll begin to see shadows moving around and between the trees. If you're brave enough to investigate further, you can exit your car and walk around in the woods or follow along the road. Within the woods, you'll see shadows only a few feet away, peering around the trees, stumbling aimlessly or darting around at random. Upon returning to your car, if you look in your rearview mirror, you'll see a full-body shadow figure standing directly behind your car. It is sometimes reported that if you stare at the figure for too long, you will hear and feel taps on the front of your car. When you look toward the sound, you won't see anything, and when you look back into the rearview mirror, the shadow's gone. The first time I went out to investigate the stretch of land, I was a little disappointed with how many houses that there were in the area, as I had expected to find deep and terrifying woods. Further down the same road, there are more wooded areas, like I had expected to find, but again, they're broken up by newly made houses. According to witnesses, the shadows can be seen even in thinly wooded areas while driving. But if you want to see them while walking, you'll have to be in the deeper sections. To any who are interested in going to this area, be advised that this is all personal property, and while the shadows do not attack, be careful to not disturb the living residents in the area. I wanted to investigate the history of the area, and this is what I found. September of 1991, sisters Michelle Urban, 14, and Melissa Urban, 16, were walking on a quiet rural road northwest of Detroit when they were kidnapped, raped, and murdered. A third victim, Cami Marie Villanueva, 18 years old, vanished around the same time. In January 1992, Cynthia Jones, 16, disappeared from the same area. May 1992, a habitual criminal by the name Leslie Allen Williams was arrested. Upon his arrest, officers found a woman locked in his trunk. He had just kidnapped a woman in broad daylight in plain view of witnesses. He was immediately charged with attempted murder, attempted rape, and the kidnapping of the woman. He showed early signs that he was guilty of further crimes. During that same month, the body of Villanueva was found in a field 35 miles from Detroit near Buno Road. Friends of Williams told the police that he frequented that area. Upon being confronted with this new information and newly found body, Williams confessed to the killing. He also confessed to killing Cynthia Jones and the Urban Sisters. He buried the Urban Sisters near a cemetery in Fenton, Michigan, not too far north, and Cynthia Jones in the woods on Buno Road. At least two of his victims were raped and murdered in the woods on Buno Road. It is believed that these four aren't the only victims, allegations which are supported by inmates who claim that Williams had openly boasted about at least two more bodies along the same road, information which he was intentionally holding back just in case the criminal justice system ever wanted to let him out again. He wanted to stay in prison forever because he knew that he couldn't stop himself from doing it again. So if you're out in the woods near Buno Road in the dark and seeing shadows, try and remember that the true monsters aren't the ones you see in the woods. Instead, 
is the one still out there, in prison, waiting to die of old age while his victims died well before their time and are still recklessly watching you from the spooky forest. So if you couldn't tell, I had written that down as I get pretty nervous when talking and I wanted to make sure I had everything checked off. Now, as I read that, I am actually currently on Bruno Road. I had stopped here because, you know, ambience, whatever you would like to say, but I didn't plan on getting out of the car, but I figured I would anyway. When I first parked here, I could swear that I had seen a shadow down at the end of the road standing in the middle of the road. And now it's gone at the completion of reading that story. There are definitely deer around, and I'm not sure if it's just the story or the shadow figure I saw standing at the end of the road, but it definitely feels creepy out here. And it definitely feels like you're being watched. And there's anywhere in the woods that you feel that, you're probably going to get some stories of any kind. But the fact that there's physical evidence of drama in the area adds extra credence to the stories. There are a few people who I have interviewed a little bit. They all do agree that the area is not just creepy, but you do just randomly see shadows and not just deer or the other random little animals we have out here. We don't have many big ones other than coyotes and some wild pigs. People reportedly see tall figures, just shadow figures, most of the time just standing there. I believe there was a call uh, given in about the dogman sighting in Milford, which, uh, is creepy nonetheless, but I haven't heard of any sort of stories of that around this area specifically. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the story, and uh, perhaps I'll call back again. I kind of have a new fascination with doing something like this. All right, thanks. Bye. Thanks, Joe. An on-location report. I love it. And it's glad to hear you survived the experience. This is a new legend for me, which is another reason why I enjoy doing these hometown legend episodes. So that said, Joe inspired me to dig up a haunted highway from my hometown or thereabouts. Now I grew up in the country of southeast Ohio, with several towns of different sizes, all about 10 to 15 minutes away. And I vaguely recalled a story about a section of US-40 that's said to be haunted in one of those towns. A section of road east of the town of Cambridge, Ohio, and a strip of road that cuts through a hill known as Deep Gut. Well, all this nostalgia got the better of me, and I dusted off a book I read several times throughout my childhood, Haunted Ohio by Chris Woodyard. Here is her take on the Deep Gut Ghost. Many headless ghosts begin their careers by being robbed and murdered. Now they wander, seeking their heads and revenge on their killers. The headless ghost of Deep Gut, between Old Washington and Cambridge, on US-40, was a laborer who worked on the National Road. He saved most of his earnings, a fact noted by several of his workmates. One payday, he disappeared and was never seen again until his apparition began frightening horses on the road. 
His murderers had shoveled his headless body under tons of road fill. It now lies entombed under concrete and asphalt. But the laborer's ghost still stumbles across Route 40, caught in the headlights of passing cars. And some good stuff. And it brings back a lot of fond and frightening memories. So thanks again, Joe, for sending that one in and going the extra mile. I bet you'd think by now this ride would be slowing down. Well, if you think that, you're vastly underestimating our listeners' commitment. I have at least twice this many hometown legend calls just waiting to be shared. So as usual, there will be a part two. And as usual, it's going to be found over on Patreon. But also as usual, I'm making it available to all levels, including the $1 level. Or you can just wait around and eventually I'll release it wide at some point for season 11. A huge thanks to all that submitted their legends. Those that didn't make the cutoff or I couldn't make room for will be automatically sent off for the next installment. So there's no need to resubmit. We'll get you in there eventually. Now back to the program and on to one of my favorite calls of these finale episodes. Please welcome Brandon from Colorado to the show. Hello, my name is Brandon Harrison. I'm calling from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I had kind of a cool, spooky story to share with you for your local legends episode whenever you get around one of those. So the story that I wanted to tell you about takes place in Manitou, Colorado, which is kind of connected to Colorado Springs. They're, they've kind of run together, but it's, it's on the far west side of town. And it's a story about a girl named Emma Crawford who died, and it was her wish to be buried at the top of a mountain there called Red Mountain. Well, she wanted to be buried at the top, but Colorado, and especially that part of town, is known for excessive rain and and a lot of runoff from the mountains. And we've had several forest fires in recent years that have made that even worse, but it's always been a problem with flooding and lots of issues with heavy rain there. So what happened, as the story goes, is that it was raining so hard one day that it actually washed out the grave and her casket slid down the side of the mountain and rested in the bottom of the canyon there. And so they actually now do a memorial race every year called the Emma Crawford Memorial Coffin Races where people build little coffin carts and they race them down the mountain. It's kind of a, you know, to commemorate the Emma Crawford sliding down the mountain after she died. She was eventually reburied and hasn't, hasn't resurfaced as far as I know. But that's just kind of a cool story, kind of a spooky thing to happen. Could you imagine living there and having that happen? Yeah, so thank you so much for hearing the story. And if there's anyone else in Manitou that would call in, Manitou was listed as one of the top 10 most haunted places in the United States by the Travel Channel. So there's definitely a lot of really cool stories in Manitou Springs. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brandon. How wild is that? Now, frankly, I love it, but I could see how some could find it a bit uh, disrespectful. I suppose it's a fine line between homage and exploitation. For example, I can't imagine creating a fun coffin boat race out of a story such as this out of Orange, Texas, back in 2015. This place here is Hollywood Cemetery. Uh, A lot of the older black people in town were buried here and I'm sure as you can see all the, the graves and tombs 
come up out of the ground. We've never had water this high that anybody can remember. So it's not a pretty sight, and, uh, and this is this is horrible. This is as bad as you can get. The smell, I guess, death and formaldehyde mixed into one. You know, we walked around a little bit to investigate, and uh, uh, after 10 minutes, your nose starts burning. So it's something we don't wish on anybody. Uh, we know what it was like, I guess, uh, when Katrina hit New Orleans and the bodies were coming up. We never know it'd come here and get us. We're hoping to get this city back put together. You know, we did it in Rita for Rita, and we're going to do it again here. Now that story is courtesy of the Associated Press. Now perhaps it's the age of the tragedies that separated for us. Maybe everyone that knew and loved Emma Crawford was already long gone themselves, or as the poor souls in this flooded cemetery still have living relatives that care about their remains. I'm not trying to spark any debate of any kind, but instead I'm making an observation that not all tragedies with the dead are looked at the same way. And all that said, when we're able again, I'd really like to visit this Colorado town and maybe even catch a race or two myself. Sorry, Emma. And thank you, Brandon, for sharing the tale. Well, since we have the dead on our minds, let's venture to the Pacific Northwest, Washington to be precise, where Morgan has another cemetery tale for us. Hi, my name is Morgan, and I just started listening this spring when COVID occurred, and I'm loving the podcast, and I thought I would call in. I'm from Washington, and this is a story about baby graves. So one of my best friends, Renee, and I have always been interested in the creepy, supernatural, haunted, all of that stuff. And it's not to say we weren't scared. We always were. It was just very interesting to us. So these incidents take place in the summer and fall of 2004, and it was right after we graduated from high school. We lived in Richland, Washington, but the baby graves are located outside of Benton City, Washington, so about 60 minutes from our homes in Richland. And we had heard about the baby graves, that they were supposedly haunted, and you always hear tidbits from people, mostly teenagers, going out there and getting scared. And really the only thing of note that we ever heard was that there was a local farmer who was always chasing people off in his pickup truck and scaring people. We finally made a series of several trips out to the baby graves, always at night, and wanting to find out for ourselves if it was haunted or what it was. So as you get closer to the location, you go through kind of a desolate canyon, and you lose all cell service. Then you come out of it, and it's a flat, wide expanse of farm fields, and there's really no lights or structures or anything out there. And we kept driving until we hit a cross-section of Cemetery Road, and from there, you just drive along this gravel road until we came upon this old-looking fenced-off enclosure. And I think it's important to mention that at no point was there a private property or no trespassing signage. And we parked right next to the fenced area and got out, and you enter through this small rickety swing gate. And it's this kind of just small little enclosure out there, and there's nothing around it. There was no lock on the gate, although it did appear very old. And inside the enclosure, it's pretty unremarkable. 
There's no vegetation, although it's clearly like not really tended to. Uh, there's some weeds, things like that. On the opposite side of the enclosure from where you walk in are several extremely old graves spaced out erratically. They kind of vary in design and structure, but all of these graves are children. Uh, there's also one white picket fenced in. I believe it's the shared grave of two deceased twins, if I remember right. So this was the baby grave, and it was certainly unnerving. It apparently, if I remember correctly, used to be a normal, like, old graveyard that had been excavated, and yet they left behind these children's graves for whatever reason. And the dates range from the 1800s to the early 1900s on the gravestones. So I've heard different accounts where people say it's haunted, that the children's ghosts wander aimlessly, confused at having been left behind or separated from their family. I've read historical accounts saying that the children died of the flu, hence the stories of children calling out for their mothers, and some visitors even leave baby toys as a token of respect. So on the various trips out there, different things happen. So this is in 2004, so wasn't the same technology that we have today. We had our like old Nokia phones on one trip out there when the service was completely lost in the canyon, including the car radio. All of a sudden, the radio station came through so loud and so clear and the lyrics said, I killed my baby today, which was super strange and freaked us out at the time, but that could absolutely just be chalked up to randomness, although it never happened before or after. At one point, Renee's cell phone rang and the screen was completely blank and it just kept ringing and ringing, which was really unusual for those old phones at the time. That never happened to us before. Still could be a glitch. Another time we were out there, and upon leaving and getting back in the car, we noticed that the front windshield looked really grimy, and upon inspecting it with a flashlight, the front windshield was covered in children's handprints. A lot of the time, we would leave the car doors open so that the dome light would stay on, and so we could quickly jump into the car to make a fast getaway in case the crazy farmer came around. I cannot remember if the handprints appeared to be made from the inside or the outside, but they hadn't been there on our drive-in. So of the several times we had gone out to the baby grave, we were always with each other, but at times we would bring out another friend with us who was curious. I cannot remember if a friend was there with us at this time when we had the handprints, but we never broke up as a group when we had someone with us. We were always together, not venturing out alone or leaving someone behind. And I say this because I don't think it was possible that someone would have broken away from the group and made the handprints as like a prank without someone noticing I'm totally open to other theories of how the handprints got there. Maybe we didn't notice them on the way, but, you know, when the light shines through the windshield, you see those things pretty clearly, and I don't see how we wouldn't have seen them already on the way up there since it was night. Also, if some crazy person was hiding out there, I think we would have seen them. While it was dark and there's really no lights around, the land is very flat and barren. There's zero obstructions to hide behind. Not even, You can't even hide behind the fence post or anything like that, or even really a gravestone. Fences barbed wire and see-through, and just the fence post and everything else is so thin or short. Once your eyes adjust, when you're out there, you can see everything. We we're always kind of jumpy if like tumbleweeds or leaves or something blew by. Also, there are no small children in either of our families that could explain how the handprints got there when we left the car unattended. And with how grimy and visible the handprints were, I think we would have noticed them on the way there, but who knows. So I would say the most remarkable incident was when Renee and I decided we were going to go full Ghostbusters and try to use some recording equipment. We borrowed some fancy recording device 
from Renee's dad. No idea what kind exactly, but we used a brand new tape that we unwrapped ourselves. Our friend Chris came with us on this outing and we drove back out. And once we were inside the graveyard, we sent the recording device on a flat stone surface right near one of the gravestones. I can't remember which one. There was no other obstructions around, no plants, tall grasses or otherwise. On the recording, you can hear Renee, Chris, and I attempting some clumsy attempts at saying hello to the supposed ghost, that we mean them no harm, asking questions such as, like, do they have any message they would like to get out, anything for us to know, or if they minded us being there at all. Eventually, we all went back to sit in our car and invited them to, like, say anything on the recording while we were away. So when we listen to the recording, you hear us leave, uh, get back in the car, and then there's just silence. And there's nothing around to create noise at all. Eventually, after a few minutes, you hear a very distinct, loud voice say something totally indecipherable. The only way I can describe it is saying, shum shum, but like really loud and like deep and kind of up against the microphone. As far as I can tell, it's definitely a voice. You can hear the distinct similarities to our human voices. It just sounds a lot closer to the microphone. After that, there is nothing on the recording until you hear us coming back from the car and saying some nonsense and stopping the recording. The recorder was exactly as we had left it, and there was nothing around that had knocked it or anything like that. And we would have seen it because, you know, we were watching. I thought about the fact that it might have been an animal, but like I said, the baby graves in the surrounding landscape, there's no obstructions, it's openly visible. We saw no movements, and there was no wind that night, and we were always really hypervigilant because we were always kind of spooked. I thought maybe it was a recording glitch, and if so, why did it sound so human? And why did it happen then and on a new tape? We ended up showing it to Renee's dad when we got home that night, who just shrugged his shoulders, who didn't really care, was not into ghost hunting like we were. Currently, Renee is checking with her parents on locating the recording device to see if they still have it. I know you don't put too much stock in EVP, but if Renee can find it, I will send it your way to have a listen. Anyway, that's it for our Baby Graves adventure. We eventually stopped going, but even now, we still talk about it and we have a soft spot for the old graveyard. So that being said, I look forward to hearing what theories you have on the radio lyrics, the baby handprints, and the recorded voice. But thank you so much for this podcast. It's such a diverse, wonderfully executed platform that you and your team run for people to come together and discuss strange occurrences. I especially enjoy the host persona you have. It makes the whole thing both creepy and fun. And please, if anyone else has any baby grave stories, I'd love to hear them. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Morgan. I guess we can lump strange graves and graveyards in with water monsters and haunted roads. There certainly seems to be a lot of them associated with hometown legends. And if you don't mind, I'd like to add another to the pile. The grave of Georgia's werewolf girl. Tucked away in Talbot County, Georgia, is the grave of Emily Isabella Burt, a woman widely believed to have been a werewolf. Like all good stories, this one has gone on to be legend, though one that is all but forgotten, except in the South. As the tale goes, the wealthy Burt family were prominent members of the town now known as Woodland. Unfortunately, the patriarch of the family died fairly young, leaving Mildred Owen Burt to care for her children alone. Rather than dote on them all day, Mildred shipped her kids off to school in Europe, which should give you an idea of how wealthy the family was. When Isabella, the shyest of the children, returned from Europe, 
her family began to notice that she was complaining of insomnia and slipping off in the middle of the night. Isabella claimed that she was going out for a midnight stroll, unable to fall asleep, but her mother couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't quite right. At the same time, local farmers were dealing with a rash of sheep killings each night, walking into the fields in the morning only to find them littered with the mangled carcass of their livestock, seemingly the victims of a wolf attack. Now together, the farmers concocted a plan to end the slayings once and for all, and started nightly hunting parties with the intention of capturing or killing the beast responsible. After weeks of failed attempts, the frustrated farmers consulted a strange old man from Eastern Europe. He claimed to know what they were up against, and it was no regular animal. It was a werewolf. The old man instructed the farmers to melt down their silver crucifixes and fashioned them into bullets. Then, by the light of the next full moon, attempt their hunt again. Just as the old man had said, the hunting party came across the silhouette of a giant, wolf-like creature in the light of the moon, and fired their rifles in its direction. One shot connected, and the creature ran off, letting out a painful scream. The attacks never happened again, Meanwhile, Mildred had followed Isabella into the woods, eager to discover what her daughter was up to all night, only to find her daughter passed out bleeding from her hand. It appeared that she had been shot. After the wound had been patched up, Mildred sent Isabella off to Paris where she visited a doctor that specialized in lycanthropy. According to all the legends, she returned to Georgia a few years later cured of her mysterious ailment and lived out the rest of her life peacefully. In 1911, at the age of 70, Isabella died, and after much controversy, was buried in the holy ground in the Owens and Holmes Cemetery in Talbot County. To this day, there are residents who believe that her spirit, in werewolf form of course, still roams the countryside on a full moon. Now that article was courtesy of Roadtrippers.com. So I think it's safe to add Emily Isabella Bird's name to the long list of legends such as Rhode Island's vampire Mercy Brown and the ghoul of the W.W. Pool Crypt in North Carolina. True or not, these details make for incredible legends. So thank you again, Morgan, for sharing your entry. And here we are, folks. We've reached the end of the road and the conclusion of this finale episode. Almost. But first, here's an anonymous entry from Big Sky Country. I am calling because I have a potential hometown legend for you. I say potential because it is not my hometown. Four years ago, I moved to a small town in Montana. I'm not going to say the name of the town um, out of respect for the person I first heard this story from but it's a small mining town. And there are a couple different cemeteries on the hill surrounding the town. And I was on a date with a gentleman and he knew I was kind of into the spookier things. And we were driving past one of the cemeteries and I mentioned that cemeteries kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. And he proceeded to make me promise to never tell anyone that he had told me this, which is why I'm not going to say where we're at. 
But he told me a story of when he was about eight years old. He was walking along the street below the cemetery from a friend's house. And up on the hill in the cemetery, he saw what he described as a devil. He said it was a large, bluish-black furry creature with horns. And that the legs were like they were on backwards. They bent the wrong direction. And he said, you know, I told one of my good friends about it, the friend whose house I was at, and he said he had seen it too, but they never talked about it. And now this is a 30-year-old, 32-year-old man telling me this story. So it's been quite some time since this experience, and I never said a word to anyone. I'm sitting at work one day, and I was talking with a coworker about how my classroom is haunted, and that's a totally different story. And she said, well, have you heard about our devil? And I said, our devil? And she goes, it's nothing official, but my son, so her son was 16, so nowhere near an age of this other guy, was driving home from work one night. And in that same cemetery, saw a, what he described as a black horned creature with backwards legs. So these are two different guys, or technically three, probably 20 years in between their experiences seeing it up in the same area. Well, years go by and I end up getting married to a local gentleman and I decided to ask him about the devil. And he goes, well, I know nothing about the devil, but I know that there's a witch buried in that cemetery. That's why the grave is backwards. So you have three strange stories now from three people who... I mean, they probably know of each other, but they don't know each other all surrounding the same cemetery. So just kind of interesting. I haven't had any strange experiences myself, but I thought I'd pass it along as a potential hometown legend for this small little Montana town. Have a good night. Thanks, caller. Now, I'll be honest, when this call came in, I didn't think much of it other than it was a fun entry and details a creature that despite me being familiar with I didn't realize it was spotted in Montana I did a little digging and I didn't find much mention of Goatman outside of a few experiences over a hundred years ago in Chelsea Montana but I had no way of knowing if that's the same area Montana is a huge state then I stumbled upon the following entry from Deanna as suddenly narrowed down my search parameters. Hey Derek, this is Deanna again. Um, I'm actually currently listening to season four, episode 19, and we're at the morning announcements, and you were talking about the hometown legends. Something you said completely reminded me of something that a gal I went to school with back in Montana during the middle school era had told, I guess, our class about, our homeroom class. So this isn't really my story. This is, this is my recollection of her story about a hometown legend from tribal lands up in Browning, Montana. I don't really have a whole lot of information, but I do recall her being very concerned and, you know, I guess scared. So she was explaining to either myself or the classroom about 
the goat man of Browning, Montana, and how there's a specific stretch of highway where a, a goat man typically will run parallel with cars or will stop vehicles by standing out in the middle of the road on this highway. I guess he looks like a little satyr, like the one off of the Disney movie, The Hercules. But he uh, he's a smaller goat in stature, goat man. <laughs> but he does have the curl horns, and he's got red glowing eyes and fangs for teeth. And, you know, he was just... She was scared. I remember her being absolutely terrified. Like I said, I don't have a whole lot of information about it. It is kind of like a tribal legend about a goat man that haunts the highway up there. He's either ghosted, like he disappears, or he is solid. It just really depends on the story and, and who's telling it. But I thought I could call in and share that with you. All right, well, I will definitely be getting some merch soon because I absolutely love your podcast. I listen to it as often as I can. I mean, it's 7 in the morning and I'm already two episodes down. So have a great day. Bye. A big thanks to both callers. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but Deanna, it's too much about you. That stuff will rot your brain. (laughs) But seriously... With the information given by both callers, I was able to at least narrow it down to a vague location. And using that information, I dove back in. But to my surprise, still came up fairly short. However, after hours of reading threads, posts, and articles, I came across the following entry from a Facebook group called Native Ghost Stories. Submitted anonymously, early 70s, Browning, Montana. I heard of this growing up, and if you haven't heard, then you are too young. The tribal cops got a call that a man was peeking in windows, so they go out to investigate. Upon their arrival, they find a man, but he's not a man. He is short and very hairy. He runs from them, and the cops chase him all the way to the old housing building, where they are able to corner him. They have spotlights on him, and he starts to run in a circle. Then the circle gets tighter and tighter. He then transforms into a ball that is rolling really fast in a circle and then just shoots up into the sky. No one could explain it and the radio chatter was busy with all the cops that were talking about what they had just seen. Now as interesting as this entry was, it didn't quite quench my thirst for knowledge on this newly discovered subject. Sure, Deanna mentioned a creature being smaller in stature. Does that suggest that this strange... Sonic the Hedgehog-esque creature, and the one Deanna mentioned is one and the same? Perhaps. But there's one detail that I can't shake from my brain. Our anonymous caller mentioned several times that the creature's legs appeared to be on backwards. Now that's a characteristic I've seen attributed to the werewolf-type creatures. Dogman, Lugaroo, Rougarou, the Beast of Bray Road and many of those witnesses also described a crooked or reversed dog-like leg that stuck out to them. So let's go back and look at the rest of the description given. I'll describe the creature as being hairy, with blue or black fur, red or glowing eyes, and horns atop the head. Well, I can't help but notice that 
Both the Dogman and the Montana Goatman share many of the same attributes. And if you mistake pointy ears for horns, well, this speaks volumes. So armed with that information, I went back to work. And wouldn't you know, I struck gold. The following excerpt is from an article by the Asia Times, published on September 8th, 2020, written by Dave Makachek. He begins the article by explaining that he was with a group of rangers in Glacier National Park when one told the following story. We drank beer and chatted over a fire, the young rangers tossing out stories, but there was one told by a female ranger that I never forgot. It involved a mysterious cabin, a place called Two Medicine. She was terrified of it, she said, and she would never dare go there, especially at night or alone. The other rangers laughed and mocked her, saying the story was only legend. But the look on her face showed otherwise. This was obviously a story that stretched one's imagination, and I thought nothing more of it for decades. It was simply scary campfire talk. Until this week, when a friend of mine sent me an email. A historian of some repute, he had dug up some information on this case, and he wanted to share it. As a journalist who liked stories from beyond, he knew I'd like it. It involved FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. He had paid a visit to the park, spent two days touring it, crossing into Canada and back. A man who hated foreigners and never traveled outside the country, it was rather strange of him to do so. But Hoover had a strange connection to the park. A bizarre investigation that remains unsolved to this day had once piqued his interest. He may have wanted to see it for himself. We will never know. The story, purportedly the first FBI X-File and the agency's only known case of lycanthropy, went as follows. In 1946, a creature that can only be described as a beast had attacked several homes on the Blackfeet Reservation, including seven in Browning, Montana, the location of Deanna's entry. As the story goes, each victim was ripped to shreds and eaten as if by a wild animal. Several of the victims, however, were found at home, as if they had invited their killer into their homes. In Glacier National Park, authorities and a assembled team of hunters cornered what they believe was this animal in a cabin. Apparently, they shot it, or at least believed they had shot it. But when they entered the cabin to retrieve the dead animal, to their shock, they found only the body of Richard Watkins. After that, the murder stopped. How this story wasn't already on my radar is beyond me. And another interesting note, Richard Watkins may well be a relative of mine. The family name on my mother's side is Watkins, and I believe I have family from the Montana area. But as far as I know, no werewolves in my bloodline yet. So where does all this leave us? Is the story true? I will admit it's widely believed to be a fabricated story but it's my understanding that Hoover did make a visit to the park at this time. And it's hard to ignore the mention of Browning and the fact that the cabin was less than an hour's drive from that town. And who was Richard Watkins? 
Was he ever real to begin with? And lastly, is there some sort of Native American connection here? Makachek goes on to mention that the Blackfoot tribe that calls the area home have a legend about the Nappy, a shape-shifting trickster element that runs amok in the hills of this region. Although, I didn't see any mention of them devouring seven cabins worth of families. So thanks again, callers, for the challenge. And I'm not ashamed to say it took me hours to make these connections. But when I read the story about the werewolf, the hair on my arms, it went up. That's going to do it for this episode and for your season 10. If you're a Patreon supporter, I'll be talking with you in a week or so with part two. Everyone else I will see on March 4th. Thanks again for the support and for yet another record-breaking, teeth-chattering season. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. Keep the party going by joining us on social media. We have accounts with Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, and Twitter. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the terrifying score you hear. Let's co.ag music and white bad audio. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for another incredible season. And have a great night. Now, I haven't decided if these secret entries will follow me into Season 11 or not. Maybe it will, or maybe it'll be replaced by something new. But tonight, I have a great entry from G in Oregon to send us out. But first, I have to share with you an entry by G from Patreon's Monsters Among Us Beyond number 33. And believe it or not, keeps us in the state of Montana. Hey Derek, I'm just going to go by G, and I'm calling from Central Oregon, but I'm originally from Montana. So anyways, when I was about 10 years old, my mom and dad and sister and I went to an air show out at the Missoula airport. And I don't know where my mom went, she probably went to the bathroom or something, but it was just my dad and my sister and I, and we're sitting out in the middle of the runway, checking out all the planes, and it was middle of July, super hot, clear day. And my dad, he's like, hey, check it out, a UFO. And he, like, points up at the sky, and we're like, uh-huh, yeah, sure, Dad. But he's like, uh, no, seriously, check it out. We both look up, and we see the sun, and then we see what looks like a second sun. 
and it's as bright as the sun, perfectly round, except it's zigzagging, like weird diagonals up and down, just all over the place. I don't know how long, it was kind of hard to look at because it was kind of near the sun, but it was just very strange, and it was even more strange how casually my dad said that, like he'd seen him before. But I had talked to my sister a couple of years ago, and she remembers it. And, you know, it was at an air show, but it was just too weird to be a plane. I don't know any planes or any kind of aircraft that can move in split seconds diagonally and zigzag across the sky. And I know there is a history of UFOs in Montana, especially in the north, kind of near Great Falls, where there are uh, missile silos with nuclear warheads and there is a story of people working at the silo because there's always people there and someone saw like lights on the horizon then everything at the command center like all the power shut off which is very worrisome obviously at nuclear silo then it was like all the power came back on and it was just strange that that happened after a sighting Now for the second half of the entry, the hometown legends portion, if you will, I welcome back G from Oregon. Hey Derek, this is G calling from Central Oregon, and I actually just called with a UFO sighting in Montana. I wanted to add to it for the hometown legends, kind of ties in. But when I was going to school at the University of Montana, I was talking to a classmate, and I told them about the sighting at the airport, and they're like, yeah, that's pretty strange. I've, like, seen something, too. And they were from Polson, Montana, and that's right on the edge of Flathead Lake. And Flathead Lake is, like, this enormous, it's, like, 30 miles long, it's, like, 800 feet deep. There's tons of big mansions, and there's also, like, an island out there. But they said they saw a craft come down at night and hover above the water and then just kind of take off. But what's weird about Flathead Lake is it has a history of sightings about seeing a serpent-like creature that everyone calls the Flathead Lake Monster. There's lots of sightings. I'm sure you could find a bunch of news articles and you know, documentaries and stuff, but I don't know of anyone who's actually seen it, but it's a well-documented monster. I don't know, it's probably not related to UFO, not saying they uh, hang out or anything, but anyway, just wanted to add to that, and uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, G. We get UFOs and a lake monster. A two-for-one to close us out. Now let's start with yet another lake creature. I swear you guys spoil me. Well, I've heard of this creature before, but I knew very little about it. So let's start with an eyewitness, or in this case, two, courtesy of KPAX News 8 out of Missoula. Jim and Julia Manley believe in a flathead lake creature. In fact, it was July 28th, Three years ago, they had a mysterious encounter on the lake. It was pretty calm. There was just a light breeze, and there were no boats in the bay. We heard the splashing. It was really loud. And then as we watched it, the splashing kind of died down, and whatever it was started moving. We 
can see these humps and there were two or three or four humps showing at, at one time. The thing just subsided in the water and disappeared. With their boat parked off the shore of Big Arm because of a dead battery, the Manleys couldn't believe their eyes. It wasn't like I saw it and Jim said, well, maybe. We both looked at it and knew it was something It was something, something huge and... It, it, yeah. it was alive. As they waited for friends to rescue them, they wondered if they could tell about what they'd witnessed and be believed. They didn't they believe didn't us. Believe. They laughed at us. We <laughs> had to go over there and buy them dinner to try and get them to believe us. Sightings of a large water creature date as far back as 1889. Locals have come to know the stories well of a monster prowling the deep waters of Flathead Lake. Since their sighting in 2005, the Manly story, as well as others, has traveled near and far. We don't really care if we make fools of ourselves, you know, but a lot of people do, and maybe if more people came out, they'd, uh, more people would tell their stories. Nobody's been making fun of us. To our face. <laughs> so with over 100 recorded sightings since 1889, we'll let you decide, is the Flathead Lake monster myth or marvel? Reporting from Flathead Lake, I'm Andrea Lutz for Montana's News Station. I mean, look, it's a natural lake, 200 square miles, 370 feet deep. Maybe it's the same creature bobbing around Lake Okanagan or any of the other northern lakes Jeremy mentioned earlier in his submission. So I'll leave that with the claim that anything is possible. But on to the UFO and more specifically the monumental event that G mentioned. Now I vaguely recall featuring this story in a past episode, but here's a new take. I've pulled some audio from an interview with one of the captains on duty that evening. The events are as historic as they are chilling. Robert Salas served seven years in the Air Force, rising to the rank of captain at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana. March 24, 1967, I and my commander, Fred Mywall, were on duty in Roy, Montana. We had control of 10 nuclear missiles. Each missile had an 800 kiloton nuclear weapon. I was on alert status. Sometime in the early morning hours, I get a call. On the other end of the phone is a terrified guard stationed above the bunker. He's screaming into the phone. He's yelling, sir, I'm looking out the front gate. I see a, this glowing red object. They were flying very fast uh, across the sky, stopping on a dime, reversing course, making 90-degree angle turns, making no noise. These guys were very, very frightened. It was a critical situation. Suddenly, the unthinkable happened. The lights turned from green to red. Red meaning unlaunchable. Everything went red. All ten missiles were disabled. Every single one of them. If we were given the order and if we had to go through our launch procedures, they couldn't be launched. You know, I, I'm thinking we're under some sort of an attack. But a week earlier, another missile launch crew at Malmstrom Base reported seeing the same strange lights. And seconds later, their nuclear warheads also go offline. All ten of their missiles went down while a UFO was overhead. All ten of our missiles went down. UFO was immediately over our facility. This was extraterrestrial in nature. I honestly believe that. I'm starting to wonder if Montana isn't a bigger hotspot than I originally imagined. I've never admittedly been to Montana, but I'll be honest, you guys have me sold.
So thanks again, G, for the entries. And thank you for another amazing season. Please stay safe, healthy, and if you're experiencing hard times, reach out for help. Keep it spooky, and I'll catch you all next season. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.